You are listening to Real Presence Radio. In the next hour, we have Dr. Jan George from Sacred Heart Productions, teaching on the Gospel of St. Mark. Dr. George, a retired university teacher of literature, has a Master of Theology from the University of Dallas. She is with us today covering the following three topics. God's plan for our redemption, second, the death of Jesus, and finally, the sorrowful mysteries of our Lord's Passion. Tune in at this time each week when Dr. George will be walking us through the chapters of the Second Gospel from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study, produced by Sacred Heart Productions. And now, here is Dr. George speaking about God's plan for our redemption. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. This final lesson in the Gospel of St. Mark, covering chapters 14 to 16, which comprise the Passion, Death, Resurrection, and Ascension of Jesus, are profound in terms of understanding the whole of the mystery of Jesus Christ. To understand this, to enter into the Paschal Mystery, we are going to begin by going back to the beginning, to the book of Genesis, to the Garden of Eden, because if we attempt to understand the fall, first of all, what Adam and Eve had received, the fall and the consequences of the fall, and God's response to that, that he already proclaims his saving word after the loss of man's life and liberty, that God comes out to us in love to save us. But in understanding that better, we can approach the Paschal Mystery of Christ. But it is the Paschal Mystery that is the pinnacle of this whole redemptive mystery of all that God had been speaking from the beginning, even from the book of Genesis, immediately after the fall. Now we know that God creates Adam and Eve, and they are created in beauty, truth, goodness, harmony, order of the whole creation. They themselves were ordered within their being. They were ordered so that all was right within them in body and soul. The body and soul existed in a certain harmony within man himself, man with man, in other words, man and woman, and man in relation to his whole world. But in turning away from God and rebelling against God, all of this went into disorder, a disorder which reverberated throughout the entire created order, throughout the entire universe, so that that original order, harmony, beauty, truth, and goodness in which God created and placed man and woman in the garden, all of this was now damaged. It was wounded. It was not entirely destroyed or annihilated, but it was very wounded. And so man was no longer at peace within himself and at harmony with woman and with the created order over which God had placed him to be master of. Now, in placing man as master over creation, as steward, to have dominion over the created order, this could occur only through self-mastery, which we lost in the garden. Because of the sin of Adam, because Adam is man, Adam is the first man, and because of that sin, 
to Adam, who is our first parent, to Adam and Eve, who are our parents, that affects all of Adam and Eve's descendants. To understand this, there are several examples, but a very simple one is to imagine that Adam and Eve are clinging to, let's say, a cloud or a helicopter or a plane. They are able to cling very close to heaven, and they let go of heaven. All their descendants, if we could have all their descendants clinging to them, hanging on to them, if Adam and Eve let go of heaven, all their descendants also lose heaven. Or we can think of it in terms of genetic integrity. If the genetic integrity of a parent is marred, they cannot pass on a perfect genetic integrity because they themselves don't have it. We cannot pass on, we cannot give what we don't have in the first place. So in body and soul, Adam and Eve were wounded. And that wound, which we call original sin, was passed on to all of their descendants, to all of humanity, the whole human race. And as St. Paul later is going to explain and describe in his letters, that because of sin, the sin of one man, all became sinners. We were all sinners. But Christ flips that over, and in his obedience to the Father, Christ does and fulfills what Adam did not do or fulfill according to God's will in the beginning. He sets everything right again. He not only restores to humanity all that was lost in the garden, but he elevates us to a higher dignity, to a greater freedom. So we not only gain what was lost, but we receive even more. This is God. This is the love of God. Love is never satisfied with giving less. It always goes out and wants to give more. And this is what God does in sending his son. Immediately after the fall, we can read in chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15, God speaks of the consequences of the fall, but he also promises salvation. He promises that there will be one sent who will crush the head of the serpent. Now that is going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in his bride because the two become one flesh. There is a one flesh union. So Christ and his bride will at the end come down out of heaven and definitively crush the head of the serpent. But first Christ fulfills the order of redemption, and he does this through his life and through his passion and death and his resurrection and ascension into heaven, gaining for us, restoring to us everything that was lost. So, Jesus Christ already is promised to us from the beginning, and God then, as time passes, makes definitive covenants with man and so everything that happens in the Old Testament, all that God speaks, all that God does, the wondrous events of God for his people, are all words and events and figures, because there are certain figures that prefigure Jesus Christ. Everything in the Old Testament is speaking about Jesus Christ. But the Old Testament is not yet the New Covenant. It points to Jesus Christ. Therefore, the Old Testament really 
is revealed to us in signs and in shadows. We do not yet have the reality. We have the reality. The reality, Jesus Christ, is revealed in the Incarnation and He brings to fulfillment in His life, passion, and death absolutely everything that God had revealed in the Old Testament. The prophets knew this. All the great figures of the Old Testament knew that as they moved forward in human history, God began to speak more and more clearly to them about this mystery, that He would send a Messiah. There would be an anointed one of God who would come and who would save Israel, who would save God's people from their sins. Now the first question of this lesson begins by asking simply about the articles of our faith. And as we know in the Creed, we confess that for our sake, Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. It is these articles that are sort of a summation of what we encounter in these final chapters in the Gospel of St. Mark. All four evangelists, the Gospel writers, give a full account, although when we say full, they leave out nothing that is essential to our understanding the mystery. But as St. John says at the end of his Gospel, if he were to try recording all that Christ did in his life, the world would not be large enough to hold all of its books. So there is a way in which the mystery of Christ can be contemplated, must be contemplated throughout our entire life, by the way we pray, by the way we live our lives, but we will never be able to exhaust this mystery. The mystery of Christ is an inexhaustible mystery, and one which we will contemplate forever in all of eternity, and even then we will not be able to exhaust it. But the creed that we profess, or that we confess, is that for our sake, Jesus Christ, pass through the Paschal Mystery. It's very important for us to ponder the words of the creeds that we profess and have been professing from the earliest days of the Church. Now, why is this so? First of all, in forming the creeds, of which the Apostles had a key role at the beginning because to the Apostles are entrusted the mysteries of Christ, the mysteries of the life and death of Christ. And so in the Apostles' Creed, the ancient creed of the Church, the Apostles' Creed consists of the basic truths of the mystery of our redemption. And because our intellects, because the power of our memory is imperfect, God constantly speaks to us over and over again of the same mystery that He has been willing from the beginning of time itself and that He completes in the person of His Son. We have to get this mystery right. This mystery is our mystery. It is God's plan for us. It is His will for us. And to get to heaven, we must pass through this mystery. We must ponder these truths, and only in pondering them and understanding them will we begin to grasp the fullness of the mystery, and then we will desire to live that out, and we will open ourselves up to the grace of God so that we can, in fact, live it out. After all, God has revealed to us that we each must, in some way particular to each of us, personal to each of us, we must each pass through the Paschal mystery of Christ. Jesus Christ is the only door, He is the only gateway 
to heaven. Therefore, in order to enter heaven, we must go through that door. We must pass through the life and death of Christ and his resurrection. It is by the power of Christ, by the power of his spirit, that we are raised up to new life. We must pass through that death. Now, we were already dead because of sin. Because of Adam and Eve, we lost heaven. The gates of heaven were closed. And so we are born into the world. We are naturally born into the world, supernaturally dead. This is why baptism is necessary. As Jesus reveals, we must be born again. We must be born again of water and spirit. And this is what baptism is. And so when we enter into the waters of baptism, we enter into, we are inserted into the life of Jesus Christ. It's a great mystery. We can only access this through faith. The natural world, the natural sciences cannot tell us much about this, and certainly they can't prove anything about this. It is a divine mystery, but it is one which encompasses our humanity in its totality, so that what we live out in our soul is also lived out in a bodily way, in an earthly way. But we must enter that mystery in Christ. Now we learn the creeds. The Church speaks of something, you can find this in the Catechism, which is called Lex Orandi, Lex meaning law, Lex Orandi, the law of prayer, Lex Credendi, the Church says, is the law of faith. How we pray is how we believe. We must get our prayers right if we are going to believe right. And by memorizing the creeds, we memorize those essential components, the mystery of our faith, and whether we're aware of it or not, there is a way in which we are sort of quietly, in a hidden way, pondering these mysteries all our life long. When we are presented with a truth, we go back to the truths that the Holy Mother Church has taught us from the beginning, and we try to place them within this whole perspective. So when we say, for example, that for our sake, Jesus Christ suffered, died, and rose from the dead, there is a way in which, from the beginning, that God would become man. God assumes, takes to himself, sinful humanity. It's a mystery, because he himself, while he becomes sin for our sake, as we profess in the Creed, he himself never sins. Sin is impossible for God. Imagine what that must have been like in the body and soul of Christ for God himself, holiness, perfection itself, to take to himself and his person all the woundedness of our humanity. He does this to redeem us because he suffers, as the prophet said. The Jews could not have understood what, for example, Isaiah was speaking about, but at least not fully, in the suffering servant songs. In this mysterious way, this servant, this Messiah, this suffering servant of God, must bear all of our infirmities. He must take on himself the chastisement that is due to us. God allows his son, his beloved son, to suffer in his person all the suffering 
that belongs to all of humanity for all of its sin. This is profound if we think about it. Christ takes every person to himself in some way which is unique. Only by faith can we think about this or access this. He takes us to himself in his life, in his suffering, in his death, and in his resurrection. We are all redeemed. There is no person created from the beginning of the world to the end that is not assumed by Christ, taken up by Christ in his humanity. All are redeemed, though not all accept God's gift in his Son. We can accept, we have free will, God will not take that away from us. We can accept or reject the gift of his Son, which is the forgiveness of our sins, which is the resurrection to new life. So we were in Christ from the beginning, and by choosing to accept this gift and be inserted fully into his life, which means that we not only live in and with Christ and through Christ and Christ in us, as he himself says, but there is a way in which we must associate ourselves with his passion and death. There is a way in which we must become configured to Christ in everything. This is difficult for us. We have the revelation of the passion of Christ which actually helps us. It helps us to understand, in the mystery of Christ, the horror of sin and all that we lost in the garden. It convinces us of sin, and it opens our minds and hearts up to marvel at God's love and mercy when we ponder what Christ did for us, not only in his life, but particularly what he accomplishes for us in his passion. It also helps us, it prepares us, and actually strengthens us to receive the graces that are necessary when we must enter into our portion, our lot, our share in Christ's passion and death. Each one of us has a lot, a portion, a share that is particular to us, that is personal to us. Because God is relational. He is person, three persons in one God. So there is relation. So there is something that is unique and personal and unrepeatable about the life, passion, and death, its manifestation in each one of our lives. And that will be to God's glory and to our own at the end of time if we accept this. So it's important for us to know the creeds and to ponder them in our lifetime. The church tells us that the people of the Old Covenant, as we know, received these events. God worked marvels for them. All these events and marvels spoke about the person of his son. And through certain figures of the Old Testament, through the word of God that the prophets spoke, and yet all of this remained mystery to them. It remained clouded to them. They could not comprehend it. As the church says, although the people of God in the Old Testament had tried to understand the pathos of the human condition, they tried to grasp this. Pathos is a word which is like pathology. They tried to understand the sinful human condition of man and its prognosis. What are the consequences? What's the future? How is this going to work itself out in time? We are God's chosen people. He says he will save us. How is this going to happen? We want to be obedient to the law. We try to be. We can't be. 
Some started to believe that they could justify themselves if they just could muster the strength to practice the law perfectly. This whole thing about what the church calls the pathos of the human condition, they tried to grasp it or understand it in light of the history of the fall narrated in Genesis because they had this divine revelation in the Hebrew scriptures. But they could not grasp the story's ultimate meaning, which is revealed only in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We exist, we live in, we see from a vantage point. We live in an age of grace and wonder. The Old Testament saw the wonders of God, but think about us living in the New Testament. We live truly in the covenant of the marvels of God. God worked wonders in the Old Testament, but as the church says, these wonderful works of God in the Old Testament were but a prelude. They were but a prelude to the work of Christ the Lord in redeeming mankind and giving perfect glory to God. Jesus Christ accomplishes this work, the church tells us, principally. He does it throughout his life, from the incarnation on, but the church says he accomplishes this work principally in the paschal mystery of his blessed passion, his resurrection from the dead, and his glorious ascension into heaven. Thank you for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you're just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the Gospel of St. Mark from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this next segment, Dr. George will be covering the death of Jesus. And now, back to Dr. George. It is true that the life and death of Jesus is a concrete historical fact. There are even history books that will attest to this. But it is infinitely more. It is not enough for us to acknowledge the life and death of Christ as a concrete historical fact. Yes, the Church says the Paschal Mystery is a real event that occurred in our history, but it is unique. In fact, the most unique event ever in the universe. All other historical events happened once and then pass away the Church tells us, swallowed up in the past. But the Paschal Mystery of Christ, by contrast, cannot remain only in the past because by His death He destroyed death. And all that Christ is, all that He lived, all that He suffered for men, participates in the divine eternity. Jesus Christ is God and man. There is the concrete historical reality of his person, but he is a divine person. Every single thing, even when, when he's sleeping, just his breathing, his beating heart, has divine power, has redemptive power. Everything. So that all about Christ transcends all times while being made present in them. Christ enters human history. He takes all humanity to himself. In him, he recapitulates. He takes all of history from its very beginning to its very end. He gathers it up in his person, in the mystery of his person. God is outside of time. He is the eternal now. Therefore, there is an immediacy about the things of God so that time doesn't matter, 
And so the power of Christ and his mystery is present in every age, in every place, in every person. We cannot live but for Christ. As the Gospels tell us, as St. John says, all things are created through him and for him. St. Paul says this, there is nothing that exists that does not have its existence except in Jesus Christ. This is profound. We have to approach the mystery in faith, hope, and love. We have to become, in a sense, transcendent ourselves in how we think and also how we act. There is infinite content or material in the Paschal Mysteries. We can pick up any one of the Gospels recorded by the evangelist and very prayerfully, slowly, read through the events and we say, well, I've read that, I've heard that, I know that. We can't possibly exhaust all that is there. We have to enter into that and think about that because it helps us understand our Redeemer, what he has done for us, how much God loves us, the holiness to which we are called, and the mystery and how we enter into Christ's mystery in our life. There is no suffering, no trial, no hardship, no temptation that is outside the redemptive mystery of Christ. And if we understand this, we lay hold of this power by the Holy Spirit. Now, as we approach the first question that deals specifically with the passion of Christ, the question asks, is it correct to say that it was God's plan that his son be crucified during his life on earth? Or is it more correct to say that sinful man acted against God's plan by crucifying his son. In the first place, God cannot ever will evil. He can only will what is good. He can only will life. So in that regard, he can never will that somebody acts against him, or he could never have willed that anyone would reject his son. But God knows perfectly the condition of man, the pathos of man, and he knows what lies in the human heart of every person. God knew how man would react to his son. Christ himself speaks of this in the parables of the wicked tenants, for example. Because God knows clearly what lies in the heart of man, he knew what we would do. Knowing that, because he guarantees our free will, knowing that, he sends his son so his son will suffer at the hands of this unleashing of evil, which gains a certain momentum as we go through the public ministry of Christ and begin to approach his passion. And as we go into the hours of his death, it's as if there is this unveiling, this unleashing of evil in all its forms, of violence, of the violence of humanity upon the beloved Son of God. He takes this to himself. He suffers in justice what is due to the rest of us. He suffers in his person the punishment and the death that belong to us by rights. God is just and God is merciful as he has always revealed of himself. And what is amazing is that God's justice must be perfectly fulfilled by the end of time. Everything must be fulfilled. Everything is fulfilled in the person of Christ. He takes to himself what we could not take to ourselves. Not only do we not have the strength, we could never endure it. We could never begin to endure it. 
But we were already dead. We were already imprisoned. How can the man who is locked up in prison for all of eternity free himself? How can the dead man raise himself to life? There was nothing we could do for ourselves. We were dead. We were lost. Christ then suffers what is justly due to us, and he turns and bestows on us in exchange. God's way of exchange is never, it's never earthly wisdom. It's never human wisdom. He gives us in exchange the forgiveness of sins and mercy. As we'll discover shortly when we talk about the Maccabees from the Old Testament and what God was saying about the mystery of his son in the Maccabees and Judas, who is the hammer of the Maccabees. He is a figure of Christ. And so in the figure of Christ, the hammer, the serpent is crushed. But in a sense, we all should be crushed for our sin. And how does God respond to that? The hammer of God, God's justice doesn't crush us. He comes down on our head with grace. He pours out his life, his grace, his healing, balming grace upon our head. That's the hammer of God. It is Christ who receives the chastisement due to us all, so that when the hammer of God comes down on our head, it is nothing but mercy and gentleness and the forgiveness of sin. So, back to our question. God, on the one hand, could never will sin or evil. And yet, on the other hand, knowing the plan that he had in store for man, he sends his only son, knowing that he will be crucified, that he will die for our sins. As St. Peter says when he is preaching, we have this recorded in St. Luke's Acts of the Apostles. This is after Jesus has died and risen from the dead. And Peter explains to the Jews, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God knew this. He speaks to us already in the story of Joseph in Egypt. Joseph, who is the beloved son of the father and whose brothers are envious of him, who hate him. Even the church fathers speak of Adam and Eve having this distorted image of God in the beginning and they became, they thought that God was envious of them. And so in this distortion, they begin to rebel against God's own goodness and truth. Our own sinfulness really is very connected to a distorted image we have of God and who he is. So Joseph then is hated by the brothers. They attempt to kill him. And he, because of their sin, goes into exile, so to speak. He goes into Egypt. Now, Egypt is symbolic of the world. Many times in scripture, Egypt is symbolic. Jesus the second person of the Trinity takes our humanity. He goes into Egypt because of the sins of his brothers. He comes into the world in the incarnation. He is in Egypt for a time. And because of the terrible famine, because the people of God are stricken, and they hear that there is this Joseph who is very wise, very wealthy, they decide that they will go to him to see if he can help them. So they go to him, and how does he respond to his enemies? Because they're the ones who are his enemies. They're the ones who have hated and tried to kill Joseph. He responds in love as God responds to us. Love is never indifferent to suffering and death. When God looks on Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, 
He is not indifferent to their suffering and death. When Joseph looks upon the suffering and death of his people, he is not indifferent to that. He is a prefigurement of Christ. And as scripture tells us, how does Joseph respond? He says, I am your brother Joseph, he eventually reveals himself, whom you sold into Egypt. But do not grieve, since God sent me here before you to preserve your lives. This was God's plan. He knew this. And he was going to allow this for a time because he had a greater plan in mind. As St. Thomas of Aquinas, in speaking of this, says, God permits evil in order to draw forth some good from it. God never wills evil. He allows it. He permits it because of free will. He does not objectively will it ever. But he does allow things for a time. But because he is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, he permits it only while at the same time bringing about or willing to bring about an even greater good. An even greater good. Now we can continue to try to act against God, but that's why even if we have lived sinful lives for a period of time, simply by turning back to God, He not only accepts us, restores everything, elevates us in dignity, He will even take the garbage of our lives. He takes all that sin and all the bad things that happen. He will turn that to good in some mysterious way that only God can do. And He shows us this time and again throughout the scriptures. This is why His works are marvelous, because He does things that so far surpass or exceed anything that we could possibly imagine or bring about on our own. Joseph says then, God sent me before you to assure the survival of your race on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. He is speaking, of course, of Christ. It is pointing to what Christ will do. He has set me up as father to Pharaoh, as lord of all his household, and governor of the whole of Egypt. As the church tells us, Christ's redemptive passion is the very reason for his incarnation. When God takes humanity to himself, he already has in view, has within his will, the redemptive passion and all that will be brought about through that. This is why in the Gospel of St. John, we read that just after Christ has his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, and the passion is starting to approach, but at first they're celebrating their Feast of the Tabernacles and so on. And Jesus says, what shall I say? Because the passion becomes imminent. The people begin to turn against Christ, and he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Christ himself knows why he came into the world. Save me from this hour? He says, no. It is for this very purpose that I have come to this hour. And he says then, Father, glorify your name. And at that point, there is a booming from heaven. And the Father says, I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. And St. John records how there were people around. Some said they heard a thunderclap. Some said they heard angels speaking. They weren't even sure, but the Father again, it's that voice from heaven. Christ knows his entering his Paschal mystery was entirely free and voluntary. He knew his mission from the Father, and he embraced it, knowing that should be a great source of strength for us. 
as God draws us into our share of the Paschal mystery as it must be lived in our own lives. Everyone, everyone is crucified in some form in this life. Everyone must carry his or her cross. Everyone enters into the agony of the garden. Everyone is scourged. Everyone is crowned with thorns. There is a way in which each and every one of us has some personal share, some lot in the mystery of Christ. It's not because God is mean. He's putting this upon us. It is very closely connected to our dignity and our freedom in Christ. Once we understand who we are as children of God and brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, that we are now, in a sense, blood relatives of Christ, and that we have been inserted into His life, we understand that our dignity is so elevated because of the fact that we are configured to the person of Christ, and that we have strength which is supernatural strength. As St. Paul says, I can do all things in Him who strengthens me. But we receive that strength. It is merited for us in the Passion. Because in the Paschal Mystery of Christ, He puts an end to the enslavement we were under, the death, the disfigurement to our humanity, the disorder in us due to sin. He puts an end to all that. And He gives us a whole new life. We become new creatures of God. We have the strength of God in us. This is the mystery. And how can we lay hold of this mystery if we don't even know it? We must at least begin by knowing what it is that the Creed professes. We must at least begin and never stop reading the Paschal mystery of Christ as it is recorded in the Gospels. And finally, a quick word about the question that deals with who is to blame. We all are to blame in the sense that we are all dead in Adam. We are all present at the crucifixion of our Lord. Each one of us is present in a personal way. He died for the sins of all. He died for all of our sins. The sins we commit in our lifetime now, 2,000 years after the death of Christ, we were there when they crucified our Lord. He didn't die for everyone except us. He died for us. He took our sins, the punishment due to us for our sins, He took that punishment on Himself in a very personal way. It's not that we were one big blob of humanity at the Passion of Christ. Each one of us was, in a unique and personal way, present to the person of Christ in his body and soul, in his entire Paschal mystery. That is something really for us to ponder on. In spite of the fact that we all collaborate, yes, God used the Jews who were out to destroy Jesus, who in turn convinced the Gentiles. They handed Jesus over to the Gentiles. And so for this reason, the scriptures speak of the Jews, how the Jews crucified Christ. St. Peter says this, as recorded in Acts of the Apostles. Through the ages, yes, Christians many times speak of how the Jews crucified Christ. But the church has been careful, especially in the last century or so, to make very clear to us that we cannot collectively condemn the race of the Jews for this. Yes, it was a concrete historical event. There were Jews who personally participated in this. And as a whole, the Jews, even apart from the other groups, as a whole, they set out to destroy Jesus Christ. But even in this, God is speaking to us. He is using them. We don't judge the personal sin 
of the Jews who shared in Christ's crucifixion, nor of any of the others who had their role in it. We don't know that. But what is recorded is recorded also because they're object lessons. God speaks to us through these events. It is interesting that it is God's own chosen people, the ones that he had given so much privilege, so many gifts, so much enlightenment and knowledge. They had the scriptures. They had the word of God. It is the most privileged group of people on earth that becomes integral in the crucifixion of Jesus and that they want to hand him over to the Gentiles. The church, in pondering this, says, therefore the church, because who is that chosen people of God, the new Israel in the age of the new covenant? It's the church. It's Christians. It is, it's worse that those who know or profess to know our Lord, those who claim to love him, are the ones who wreak violence on him. There is something especially onerous, horrible, hypocritical in that. And so the church, in speaking of that, says that the church does not hesitate to impute to Christians the gravest responsibility for the torments inflicted upon Jesus, a responsibility with which they have all too often burdened the Jews alone. What is our role? Even in the age of the church, we have scandals in the church. We have even had a scandal in the priesthood. Think of how that grievously afflicts our Lord, how he suffered for those scandals and the bitterness of them, the bitter cup that he had to drink for these things. Judas, think of Judas, how beloved he was. Scripture speaks of this that the one who was his friend, his intimate friend, the psalmist foretells this, that it would be the intimate companion of Jesus who would betray him. It makes the betrayal that much more bitter. Thank you for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you're just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the Gospel of St. Mark from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this final segment, Dr. George will be covering the sorrowful mysteries of our Lord's Passion. And now, back to Dr. George. Finally, let us turn for a few minutes to, to the Passion of Christ, entering into it by way of the five sorrowful mysteries of the Rosary. And we will touch only on one or two points for each of the mysteries. As I said, it is inexhaustible. We cannot exhaust the mystery of Christ's passion, death, and resurrection. So we begin with the agony in the garden, and we remind ourselves how Jesus enters his passion by going into a garden. It is in a garden, in the first garden, where there is peace and order and harmony, where life was lost where man rebelled against God, was disobedient to God. So Jesus, in restoring this, in making all things right, he begins by entering into a garden also. And he does what man did not do. He is the new man, of course. He is the new Adam. He sets everything right by being perfectly obedient to the Father. Adam was not asked to do anything like what Christ is asked to do. He is asked to hand his life over out of love. And he 
obediently, lovingly does this and thereby sets everything right. With Adam in Christ, there is a way in which Adam is in Christ, in the garden, all over again. And now it is the obedient son who answers the father, with Adam taken up within him. This is what the mystery of the redemption is. He redeems everything. He pays the debt that was due to us. It is also interesting that St. John, in speaking of the Paschal mystery, speaks of another garden. We have the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus enters into the Passion. And incidentally, the word Gethsemane means oil press. You know, it was olives that were pressed, were crushed, to get oil. And Jesus is the first fruit of the order of creation and redemption, really. That olive, that fruit, is crushed in the garden, and from this will pour forth the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon the world. St. John speaks of another garden after the crucifixion and death of Christ, and in this garden, it must have been a new garden, because he speaks of a new tomb. He speaks of it in terms of a newness, okay? We don't know a lot about the garden. But there was something new. There was another garden, is what we know. In this second garden, there is no death. It's the garden that God has been speaking about all along. He spoke about it through the prophet Isaiah. He said, I will give you another garden, another garden of Eden. It will no longer be a wasteland. He says, this will be a garden of Yahweh. And in this garden, Christ is risen from the dead, so that when the people go into that garden, to that tomb to find him, there is no death in that garden. Death does not exist in that garden, because Christ has been raised from the dead. That is the new garden already on earth that God has been speaking about through the prophets of the Old Testament, a garden which will be fulfilled at the end of time, because God himself, we can read about this in the book of Revelation, speaks of heaven as God's paradise. It is the definitive and final garden where man shall live at the end, the garden of God, which is heaven. The second mystery, the scourging of the pillar. Man, in turning away from God, became disfigured. We lost our original beauty in body and soul. We then succumbed to suffering, to death, to sickness, disfigurement. We also lost our freedom. Christ takes this to himself. He allows himself to be chained or tied to a post. He becomes enslaved. He actually does from the moment of the Incarnation, as St. Paul speaks of, that God becomes a slave. He becomes a servant. He gives up his riches, his freedom, and becomes a servant for our sake. As he tells his apostles, he does not come into the world to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. As we enter into the Paschal Mystery, it's sort of the culmination of the whole mystery of redemption. We see all of these things coming together in the precise events of the Paschal Mystery, where God is unveiling to us what he is doing for us in his Son, Jesus Christ. So in the Scourge at the Pillar, Jesus is shackled, he is chained, he is bound up, while the world in all its sin is let go on him, until they beat him and scourge him so mercilessly that 
he is unrecognizable as a man in fulfillment of the words of the prophet Isaiah, who said that the suffering servant of God would look so ghastly that men would turn their faces away from him because they couldn't even look on him, that he did not look like man any longer. He took the disfigurement to himself that belonged to us. He took that to himself in his beauty, his divine beauty, and restored to us and also elevated that beauty and that freedom that God had in store for us from the very beginning. We cannot imagine, you know, the body of Christ and a crucifix does not really illustrate the truth of the passion. And if it attempted to, it, it would be hard for us to look on. We know that if we've ever seen a crucifix where there's a body that looks really terrible, so deeply afflicted, it's hard for us to look on that. And this is a crucifix made of wood or, or plastic or something. Even if we could illustrate it or see it or know it, what we would see physically and visibly is not the whole reality of what happened in the person of Christ. He is human and divine. We cannot fathom what he suffered in his heart, in his soul, in all of this. We don't know the measure of Christ's sufferings even in his body. We cannot know this. It is in the scourging, and you have the readings in your secondary list that you can look at, but it's here where we discover God was already speaking to us about the terror, the reign of terror that would be let go on the world through the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, and we can read about this in the books of Maccabees, and how he first goes into Egypt, symbol of the world, and he conquers all of Egypt. Then he takes his massive army with the elephants and the cavalry and chariots, and he turns and sets his sight on Israel and Jerusalem, Scripture tells us. He goes after the people of God because he wants to conquer all. Not only the world, he's going to conquer the people of God. And he goes and war breaks out there. But Mattathias, who is a patriarch of the Maccabee family, a patriarch in Israel, he is a father, father figure, and he says, this cannot be, this must not be. He gathers to himself all the sons of his family to make war on this so he can crush the reign of terror. And he chooses his beloved son, Judas Maccabeus, whom scripture says it means hammer of God. And he sends this hammer of God, his son, scripture says, in his stead. The father sends Judas, if we read the, the lines of scripture, he sends his son Judas in his place. All of this is fulfilled in the mystery of Christ. And as we have already said, that hammer comes down and crushes the reign of terror. But the amazing thing is that same hammer comes down upon us and crushes us, so to speak, with what? The forgiveness of God, the mercy, the gentleness, the love of God in His Son, Jesus Christ. The crowning of thorns points to the dignity that we lost, the royal dignity we had as children of God. We were sons of the King. We were heirs to the kingdom and we lose that dignity. The king of kings, then, is the beloved son, and we know the cruelty of the crowning of thorns, which is part of the scourging. They place upon his head this crown of thorns. They mock him. They put a purple robe, symbolic of royalty, on his shoulders, and they mock the majesty and power of God, 
They mock his truth. Do you remember scripture says they blindfolded him? They hit him and spat upon him. Who struck you now? Who struck you? This is God who reads the hearts of man. They put a blindfold on him. Who struck you? Believe me, Jesus knew who struck him and what every heart in that room was thinking. They mock truth itself. They mock knowledge. They attempt to bind up the power and the freedom of God. And they mock, just as the people do when Christ is hanging on the cross. There he is, nailed to the cross. And the people are saying to him, If you are God, in other words, if you have any power at all, come down off that cross. They mock God's power. And yet, he does not show forth his power. In a sense, it's a good thing he doesn't show forth his power, because it probably would have annihilated the world of an instant. He endures all this. He endures it for a time because he's showing us his love and his forgiveness. God waits upon us all through our lifetime. There's so many times when he could act, and he doesn't. He withholds his hand because he is all love and mercy and forgiveness. In the carrying of the cross, he gives us the strength. He merits for us the strength to carry our cross, our burdens in life. In the very beginning, Life was not a burden. Work was not a burden. Work was a gift from God. It's only because of the fall that that is damaged and work becomes a burden for us and it's toilsome for us. And it's also almost impossible. We can never quite bring about what we would like to do as we set out to do it. All of this changes in Christ. He takes the cross of humanity upon himself and wins for us the strength to pick up our cross and to carry our cross to the very end where that very cross will be set down so that we can be nailed upon it. There is a way in which the very cross we carry is the same cross that we are going to be nailed to, that we will die upon, in a sense. There is a mystery in which Christ's own passion and death belongs to us. We each have our share, our lot in it. Death is transformed in Christ. After Adam and Eve turn away from God, they must suffer and they must die. Everything becomes burdensome because Jesus takes all the consequences of sin to himself and uses that as the very content of our own redemption. He thereby gives redemptive value, powerful value, not only meaning, but real power to those same consequences which continue to exist. We live in a fallen world, but it is a redeemed world. For this reason, everything that we encounter, all the trials, temptations even, the hardships, the suffering, the terrible things that happen to us in life, all of these have been redeemed by Christ. And although they have that aspect of carrying the curse of the fall, we must not look at it that way, because God has turned the curse of death itself into a blessing. As he spoke even in the Old Testament, the death of his faithful ones is precious in the sight of God. He is speaking about his son, but he is also speaking about all of us and what we would gain in his son. The death of each of us is precious in the sight of the Lord. That death is even carried forward in our own suffering. 
as St. Paul says, we carry the death of Jesus in our bodies as we go throughout the day. That is precious in the eyes of the Lord, especially when we unite ourselves to the power of the Paschal mystery of Christ, to that redemptive mystery. Our lives, our very suffering, our very death, take on an infinite value. We can even share, we can collaborate with Christ in the redemptive mystery. We can, like Christ, who did this for the sake of others, he says, follow me, we can imitate him. We can unite ourselves to Christ and we can do this, we can suffer what we must suffer for the sake of others. This is what love is. This is the power of the mystery of Christ. And we have access to it first through baptism. But God, through the life of grace, continues to invite us to enter more and more deeply into this. Because every day, as long as we live on earth, we are living the Paschal mystery of Christ. If we try to live the good Christian life and bad things happen to us, we shouldn't say, why are bad things happening to us, Lord? Because he loves us, because we have said yes to him, because we have inserted ourselves into the mystery of Christ, he's handing over to us our portion and our lot. As the psalmist says, the psalmist prayed for his portion and his lot, which he said, my lot is secured in the Lord. We're secured in the Lord. We are secure in Christ who sits in glory at the right hand of the Father. The greater we are configured to Christ in this life, the greater is our glory. Because the more we're configured to Christ, and the more we act as Christ acted, and the more we love with the love of Christ, the more that we are Christ, the more that we are the beloved son, the beloved sons and daughters, brothers and sisters of Christ, in the world. Nothing in this life, absolutely nothing, whether it is a sin we have committed and repented of, whether it is something that happens to us, nothing that happens in this life is outside the redemption of Jesus Christ. Everything has value if we simply unite our entire life, especially the Paschal mystery of our life, to that of Jesus Christ. Then, then we are with Christ. We say, Father, should I ask to be spared from this hour? No. It's for this very purpose. We are here for Christ's own purposes. We should say with Christ, Father, glorify your name. And in response, he will. He will give us the grace we need that he may be glorified. And it is that glory that will be our share in the glory of Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study on Real Presence Radio. Lessons, study guides, and additional material can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org. This concludes the Gospel of St. Mark. We hope you have enjoyed listening and that you'll join us next week when a new series will begin. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church. Thank you.